Our first speaker tonight will be Jonathan McIntosh. Jonathan is a Fellow of Humanities at New St. Andrews College, where he teaches courses on political philosophy, economics, ethics, theology, and Tolkien. He'll be presenting tonight on Nothing Common About It, Revisiting Common Grace. Jonathan. Well, the title and topic of my paper this evening, are they're actually a little different from what was originally planned uh, and advertised in your handout, though it's still on the topic of common grace. Uh, the, a more accurate title would be this, Common Grace versus Political Presuppositionalism. And what I want to talk about is the reform doctrine of common grace and the role that I think it can and needs to play in our thinking about our political relationships with non-believers. I want to suggest that the doctrine of common grace is important for helping us avoid two opposing ditches that reformed Christians are prone to fall into in thinking about the possibility of a shared social order or, and political order between believers and non-believers. And related to avoiding these two ditches, I want to suggest that the doctrine of common grace helps us unite two impulses that are often assumed to be antithetical to each other. And I also want to begin by admitting that what I'm going to be saying tonight is at one level quite elementary, so much so that I can't imagine that someone somewhere else hasn't already said everything I'm going to say tonight, only better. But since I don't know who that person is, much less where they said it, this is my stab at saying it for the first time myself in a public setting. And I hope the exercise will be as useful to you as I hope it will be for me. And I look forward to the Q&A period and any conversations I might get to have with some of you in the future in helping sharpen my own thinking on these matters. Well, a proper understanding of the Reformed doctrine of common grace, I want to suggest, is able to harmonize, on the one hand, a position of radical cultural transformationism, one that seeks to bring the entirety of our social reality into obedience to Christ, and on the other hand, a practical accommodationism that in the meanwhile affirms the possibility of a social order that is not in fact explicitly, officially, or formally Christian and which can be shared by believers and non-believers alike. We're going to try to unite, harmonize these two, that we can do both of these things at once and that we need to do both of these things at once. In uniting these two seemingly contradictory positions, I think the doctrine of common grace helps us avoid two opposing ditches that Reformed Christians, as I say, uh, are liable to fall into. On the one hand, it helps us avoid the kind of Reformed secularism, a Reformed secularism that would attempt to cordon off the political realm from the religious and confining each to their own distinct separate kingdoms, as we see in certain radical expressions of the reformed two-kingdom doctrine. On the other hand, and coming now to the ditch that I'm particularly interested in and concerned about in this talk, um, on the other hand, a proper understanding of common grace should cause us to reject a view that I will here refer to as political presuppositionalism. Political presuppositionalism, as I'm using the term, is the view that because only the believer can give a consistent, rational account of the possibility of political society, 
There is no common ground upon which the believer and non-believer can agree and coexist politically. The implication is that only the only political order that the believer can faithfully work towards or support is one that is explicitly, officially, or formally Christian in character. Far from being the only faithful Christian political position, I will suggest that political presuppositionalism, in its implicit denial of the reality of common grace, is in fact the unwittingly guilty of its own form of autonomous secularism. Well, with that said, by way of introduction, let's define some of our terms. Common grace, as its name implies, is the reformed teaching originating in the mid, mid to late 19th century that there exists uh, a form of unmerited divine grace or favor that God bestows on all men in common, both the elect and the reprobate alike, without distinction. Let me give that definition to you again. Common grace is the unmerited divine grace or favor that God bestows on all men in common, both the elect and the reprobate alike, without distinction. It is called common grace to distinguish it from that special grace, sometimes called saving or salvific or efficacious grace, that is reserved only for the elect, and which is the Holy Spirit's work of actually and effectually regenerating justifying and sanctifying human beings towards their final state of salvation. Perhaps the most often cited biblical passage to illustrate the reality of what we're here calling common grace is our Lord's statement in Matthew 5, uh, chapter 5, verse 45, that our Father in heaven, quote, makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Reformed theologian John Frame, he helpfully distinguishes six different effects or dimensions of God's common grace. These are, first, God's restraint of sin. Second, God's restraint of his own wrath. Third, God's gift of temporal blessings to all. Fourth, unregenerate people's ability to do good good in quotation marks, right? It's a relative good, earthly good. Fifth, unregenerate people's ability to know truth. And sixth, unregenerate people's experience of at least some blessings of the Holy Spirit. This is John Frame. He's probably thinking of passages like Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, where um, even, even those who um, fall away can, can experience um, the works of the Spirit to some degree. So the common grace, um, common grace has both a negative and positive aspect to it. Negative in its role in preventing men from being as bad as they otherwise might be, but also positive in equipping men to do certain kinds of good or at least useful or beneficial things. As a whole, what the doctrine of common grace says is that despite human sin, God is still very much at work in the world, including in the daily mundane affairs of non-believers as well as believers directing their actions in a way that is in some meaningful sense for their own good and the good of others. Now, the reason the doctrine of common grace is a specifically reformed doctrine is because it is trying to answer a specifically reformed question. Namely, in what sense, if any, does God show favor or goodness not only to the elect, but also to the non-elect? That is, those individuals whom God, in his eternal counsel, has deter determined not to save. 
Indeed, it has been such a conundrum for some reform thinkers that some have concluded that there is no such thing as common grace at all. Scripture, after all, nowhere uses the word grace in exactly this way, and it is argued that nowhere else in the Bible do we see God regarding or treating with favor or other benevolent disposition those whom he has determined not to save. What can it mean then, these critics of the doctrine of common grace would argue, what can it mean that God, for God to show grace or favor to those whom he purposes to damn? Doesn't this involve a psychological, a divinely psychological contradiction? Feelings on this matter have run so strong that in the year 1924, the Protestant Reformed Church, led by theologian Hermann Hoeksma, was uh, formed in reaction to the Christian Reformed Church's affirmation of the doctrine of common grace, an affirmation that its critics believed was contrary to the Reformed confessions. So this is part of the Reformed tradition. We've got an entire denomination being formed explicitly in rejection of the doctrine of common grace. So the doctrine of common grace has not been without controversy, and I submit that even among many Reformed thinkers that do affirm the doctrine of common grace, there's been a related deep ambivalence towards the concept. I think Reformed believers, even the ones who affirm it, are very unsettled by this doctrine. Um, I think we have generally a very weak doctrine of common grace, even by those who affirm it, in my experience. Uh, David Chilton, for example, um, asked the question in his essay um, on common grace, eschatology, and biblical law. Uh, he asked the question, what are we to make? And this, so David Chilton's writing as someone who affirms the doctrine of common grace. What are we to make of uh, the Bible's passages that have been used to support the idea of limited favor towards creatures in general? His answer, without exception, they refer to gifts of God to the unregenerate. They do not imply God's favor. Certainly it is true that God protects, heals, rewards, and cares for the unregenerate. But none of these verses indicates an attitude of favor towards the unregenerate beneficiaries of his gifts. So Chilton, I'm just citing him as an example of someone who affirms the reality of common grace but would deny that it is a really gracious or favorable. They're gifts, but not, doesn't show any favor. Well, one significant area of reform thought in which I think one can find a direct affirmation of the doctrine of common grace, but which has also been criticized, and fairly, I believe, for its practical rejection of common grace, is the apologetic and epistemological school of thought known as presuppositionalism. Pioneered by the great reformed philosopher and theologian Cornelius Van Til, presuppositionalism's most distinctive, defining, and controversial statement, I think, is that for any knowledge claimed to be valid, it must be self-consciously based upon the presuppositional foundation of the truth of Scripture and the existence of the triune God, and that apart from the presupposition, these presuppositions, all human knowledge is impossible. It's not really knowledge. Because the non-believer approaches the world with unbelieving presuppositions, there's a fundamental antithesis between all of his thinking and the believer's such that there is no possible intellectual common ground between them. His unbelief, in other words, infects everything he believes and does to such an extent that he has no shared knowledge or experience with the believer. For the believer, accordingly, to interact with a non-believer in an apologetical or philosophical context as though they did or could share or uh, some intellectual common ground is for the believer to make a fatal concession to the non-believer in his autonomous unbelief. In his book on common grace, accordingly, Van Til puts the utter lack of intellectual common ground between the believer 
and the unbeliever this way. I quote, We conclude then that when both parties, the believer and the non-believer, are epistemologically self-conscious and as such engaged in the interpretive enterprise, they cannot be said to have any fact in common. On the other hand, it must be asserted that they have every fact in common. Both deal with the same God and with the same universe created by God. Both are made in the image of God. In short, they have the metaphysical situation in common. Metaphysically, both parties have all things in common, while epistemologically, that are a theory of knowledge, they have nothing in common. So metaphysically, everything in common. Epistemologically, nothing in common. Well, this quote, end quote. So this quote is important as, as I think it helps explain in what sense Van Til was able to affirm common grace while denying that the believer and the non-believer have anything intellectually in common. For Van Til, the common grace experienced by the non-believer was a metaphysical common grace. The non-believer enjoys the blessings of living in the same world that God has made in which the believer also lives in. This area of common ground and hence of common grace, however, stops the moment we reach the border of the unbeliever's mind. Epistemologically, Van Til says, the believer and the unbeliever, quote, have nothing in common. Well, the problem with this understanding of common grace is, first, it draws, I think, a completely artificial, implausible, and untenable distinction between the realm of reality that the believer and the unbeliever share in common and the realm of knowledge that they allegedly do not share in common. The human mind, after all, is something that exists in reality, such that it is simply not possible for the believer and the non-believer to share the same metaphysical world without that metaphysical common ground spilling over into the epistemological realm and what the believer and non-believer are able to know. This problem has been well documented by critics of Van Til's presuppositionalism. Equally well documented is the second problem with his, this account, which is its implied denial or at least, least severe confinement of the operations of common grace. In denying that the non-believer has any common ground epistemologically with the believer, Van Til is making a rather startling statement not only about the non-believer's lack of knowledge, but also about the radical limits on the power of God's own common grace. The reason there is no common ground epistemologically between the believer and the non-believer is because epistemologically there is no common grace shared by the believer and the non-believer at that level. When it comes to knowledge, the rain falls and sun shines only on the just. Well, this brings us to this view that I'm calling political presuppositionalism. Like the presuppositionalism of Van Til, political presuppositionalism rejects, and rightly so, the idea that there's any neutrality anywhere. In case you're wondering what I'm critiquing, I'm not critiquing that, okay? Rejects the idea that there's any neutrality anywhere, and hence that there's any square inch of reality over which Christ does not claim and exercise his lordship. The political presuppositionalist applies the same thinking to the realm of politics, where he again rightly points out that Christ is no less Lord over the public square than he is Lord over reason, causality, the human mind, knowledge, apologetic method, you name it. As valid as these claims are, however, none of them are proper to presuppositionalism as such. Okay? Presuppositionalists are good at emphasizing those things. None of those claims are proper to presuppositionalism. That's just classic orthodox theism, okay? Christ is Lord over everything, in case you didn't know. Um, just, um, 
just as what is definitive of presuppositionalism as such is its claim that there's no epistemological common ground between the believer and the non-believer, what is definitive of what I'm calling political presuppositionalism is the claim that there's likewise no political common ground between the believer and the non-believer. Put differently, political presuppositionalism says that because the non-believer is starting from the wrong first principles, which he is, and because he cannot be trusted not to live or to rule in a manner consistent with his unbelieving principles, no political arrangement, common ground, or compromise between the believers, the believer and the unbeliever is possible. The problem with this view is that, as before, it involves an arbitrary and unsustainable distinction between, for example, the metaphysical sphere in which the believer and the unbeliever indisputably have as common ground together that they have as common ground together, and uh, so an arbitrary distinction between that and, in this case, the political sphere in which it is denied that any common ground is possible. In making this distinction, moreover, political presuppositionalism, similar to its epistemological counterpart, effectively denies the reality of God's common grace in the political realm. Other objections come to mind, and, and these are just semi-random, but um, for example, the fact that someone is a believer is sadly no more a guarantee that he will live consistently with his principles. So this is an observation I would, I would make. The fact that someone is a believer is sadly no more a guarantee, guarantee that he will live consistently with his principles than we are guaranteed that the non-believer won't live consistently with his principles. So for all practical purposes, it's not clear to me that the believer ought not to be held in just as much suspicion by the political presuppositionalist as the believer, as the, I'm sorry, as the non-believer. Second, insofar as the political presuppositionalist sees non-believers as at least able to have common ground with each other, right, non-believers are able to have common ground with each other, apparently, the political presuppositionalist would seem to unwill, unwittingly grant the unbelieving position far more coherence than can actually be accounted for on the presuppositionalist's own terms. At a foundational level, after all, there's no such thing as the non-believer living consistently with his principles. Presuppositionalists sometimes talk this way, like, no, unbelief is irrational. There's no, there's no being rationally consistent with irrationalism. So there's no such thing as the non-believing non-believer living consistently with his principles, since from the principle God does not exist, for example, nothing in fact follows. And I mean that quite literally. Nothing follows. If so, and if the believer and non-believer are not able to have any common ground with each other, despite the fact that the believer is standing on the ground of all truth, then what is this mythical common ground that non-believers are supposedly able to share with each other? Where did it come from? Who is the God responsible for creating it? I'd like to know. The political presuppositionalist, in denying that there's any political common ground shareable by the believer and non-believer, implicitly posits an alternative universe for the non-believers to share with each other. In his effort to be a consistent Calvinist, the political presuppositionalist has become instead a Manichaean dualist. But if two non-believers are able to share political common ground with each other, when neither of them have a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ yoking them either to reality or to each other, our response ought not to be how can a believer and a non-believer have any common ground, but how could they possibly not? It's far more reason for a believer and a non-believer to get along than two non-believers, if you think about it. 
Another perspective on the same issue, one of the most anti-Christian political philosophies ever formulated, is that of Thomas Hobbes, according to whom human sorry, human cooperation, you think that word would be more familiar to me than it is. Um, according to Hobbes, uh, human cooperation is basically impossible without the saving grace of the political sovereign. At the heart of Hobbesianism, in other words, is an almost total denial of a God who rules human existence by his common grace, making the divine intervention of the political sovereign necessary. I would suggest that political presuppositionalism commits a, kind, a form of Hobbesianism in its related denial of the presence of God's common grace in creating political common ground between believers and non-believers. So if political presuppositionalism is not the answer, then what is? What does a politics of common grace look like? Here I'm just going to be sketching very broadly. This is really the start of, of trying to formulate this rather than the end. And I want to suggest that what the doctrine of common grace properly understood enables us to do is to pursue two distinct and complementary aims and strategies with respect to unbelievers at once. The first and most important aim and strategy is the theological one. And here I'm using theological in a negative, or I'm sorry, not negative, but in a narrow sense, because in a sense, in the broad sense, everything is theological, including the distinction I'm about to give you. <laughs> but in the narrow sense, um, the, uh, there's the, the theological, what I'm calling the theological strategy. Um, the theological strategy, in short, is the Great Commission of discipling the nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey all that the Lord has commanded. And that includes being obedient in their politics. And this is where the position of radical cultural transformationism that I spoke of earlier comes in. As Christians, we must be seeking nothing less than the total transformation of all spheres of human life and experience, bringing them into obedience to Christ. So nothing I've said, I'm about to say, should be understood as reneging on that claim at all. Okay? Now, maybe I'm contradicting it, but you'll, that'll be your task to try to show where the contradiction is. Um, if you think that there is one. So, again, we must be seeking nothing less than the total transformation of all spheres of human life and experience, bringing them into obedience to Christ. If the first and primary aim and strategy towards the non-believer is theological, the second, secondary, and subordinate aim and strategy is the political, and that is the strategy of practical accommodationism. While the first strategy is laboring to bring all men into obedience to Christ, the second strategy, in the meanwhile, affirms the possibility of a social order that is based on whatever degree of common ground the believer is able to find with the non-believer or get him to agree to. And if that means a social order that is not, in fact, explicitly, officially, or formally Christian, then so be it. In this, the believer is not to be understood as making a fatal secular concession to the non-believer's unbelief, but instead is simply obeying what Christ himself has told him to do. For the believer, a social contract or a constitution that doesn't have Jesus' name on it, for example, may, depending on the circumstances, be precisely the thing that Jesus wants him to do, wants from him. The possibility of such a social order, so far as it is possible, is not because there is a neutral space where non-believers are able to live consistently and integrally with their principles, and that because of this consistency, the believer is therefore able to reliably join him there. That's not what makes this possible. Precisely the opposite is the case. Common grace makes it possible, and common grace means that despite the unbeliever's unbelief, we can reasonably count on him not 
to live consistently with his unbelief because we know that God is there enabling him to do so. How stable and long-living is a political order that is not explicitly, officially, and formally Christian able to be? Answer, as stable and long-living as God's often inscrutable common grace allows it to be. Right Now, we as Christians would sometimes like it to be shorter. Right, We want unbelief to always break and not work, and Christian things always to work. I think a responsible look at history just shows that, that God's not that tidy. Okay, that's God doesn't conform himself to our systematic theology as much as we might like. Um, so the primary difference um, is how much common grace and common wisdom and common justice God chooses to give. Does that mean that laboring for the conversion to Christ of everyone in a political society is itself a politically irrelevant, irrelevant goal? Not at all. On the contrary, and as I've just indicated, in any given situation, with any given individual, with any given political society, the more grace to be had means the greater the possibility of a stable, long-lasting political order. The point is this. This principle is always situation or context-specific and cannot be generalized into a blanket statement about the impossibility of a political arrangement between believers and non-believers that is not explicitly or overtly Christian. So we should always prefer, and by God's grace, labor to bring about more grace and more obedience to Christ than what we currently have. But in doing so, we need to take care to take advantage of all and not neglect any of the grace that God has to offer, either common or special. So where God is provided by his common grace to find common ground with non-believers, you are rejecting common grace not to take advantage of that, or you're at least neglecting it. Well, I want to end with the concluding words of one of my earlier lectures at this forum in which I argued for a natural law libertarianism. Because if you're wondering where I would go next with this argument, uh, that lecture would be my answer, at least topically. This argument, I do think, still needs some, some further refinement. And what I said at the end of that lecture, which you can find on YouTube or podcasts if you're interested, um, that what I said at the end of that lecture was this. What natural law libertarianism represents is a moral and political philosophy that seeks to uncompromisingly summon the world to and make it a credible, good faith offer of a present political peace. Even while simultaneously preaching to that world, the unconditional and comprehensive demands, but also gifts, of the one who is the Prince of Peace. This is what God has called us to. May God give us all the grace, both special and common, to hear his command and obey. Thank you.